Hi, I'm Joshua Rosenberg, and thanks for downloading this podcast of Law in Action, which is all about terrorism and counter-extremism. This week, we have a bonus for you. It's a specially extended version of my interview with the independent reviewer of terrorism legislation, David Anderson, and you can hear that towards the end of the programme. I hope you enjoy it. I woke up that morning to a barrage of text messages from friends saying, you know, you've been mentioned on... Uh, 10 Downing Street press release, you know, what have you done? (laughs) Firstly, I couldn't really believe it. I thought maybe they're talking about somebody else with the same name as me, but then when I checked one of the articles, they actually had a picture of me kind of frozen in time from a a YouTube video. (laughs) So that's when it dawned on me, I think. It It was quite a shock. Salman Butt is a British Muslim and the editor of a website called Islam 21C. He says it promotes orthodox Islam in a modern context. But Downing Street identified him in a press release last year as a hate speaker who expressed views contrary to British values. The press release was about, I think, naming and shaming certain universities for hosting so-called hate preachers or extremists on campus. My name was in the notes to editors on the bottom, alongside a handful of other Muslim speakers. I think... By putting my name there, I think it showed for myself and all of my friends, people that know me, that in doing so, they've effectively rendered meaningless the word extremist. Can you think of anything that would have justified your name being on this list? Absolutely not. And that's one of the reasons why I uh, I pursued a, a legal case against the government. Salman Bhatt is not only accusing Downing Street of libelling him, He says that government efforts to fight Islamist extremism have interfered with his right to free speech. And now a High Court judge has given him permission to seek judicial review. But the government says he's one of a number of people who've spoken at universities against values such as the rule of law and tolerance for others. This is what the Home Office Minister Karen Bradley told MPs in a written answer last year. Dr Salman Butt is the chief editor of Islam 21C, a publication that hosts material contrary to British values and has himself expressed views of concern in this publication and on social media, appearing to compare homosexuality to paedophilia as a sin and supporting FGM. He has spoken alongside Cage and used social media to support Cage's position on Mohammed Mwazi, Jihadi John, which has been to try to justify his resort to violence. Salman Butt denies these allegations and says he's been misrepresented, although he accepts that he shared a platform with the Muslim prisoner lobby group Cage. And this week, his website published an article urging the Muslim community to support an extremist Islamic speaker who was found by a judge last Friday to have encouraged religious violence. But Salman Butt says he's entitled to hold religiously conservative views, for example, his opposition to homosexual relations. It's morally forbidden, haram, uh, in Islam. The act, just like heterosexual sex outside marriage, is something forbidden in Islam, morally, but that doesn't mean you know you or somebody else doesn't have the legal right in this country to do as they please. You do seem to compare homosexuality and paedophilia, and many people would find that very offensive. Well, my intention is not to offend anyone. Just I think if you articulate yourself in a non-insulting way, then I think people should be able to you know, mention whatever they sincerely believe. Do you regard this 
as a rather conservative view, perhaps rather an extreme view. I don't regard it as extreme, personally. It is what some may consider a conservative, social conservative view, but conflating that with some kind of extremism and terrorism and this kind of stuff, I think is a bit a bit of a stretch. Somehow the circle of who an extremist actually is or what extreme actually is has become broader and broader to include just perfectly non-violent individuals with particular either religious, conservative or political uh, opinions. Tell me what the government regards as a definition of extremism then. The one I think um, most commonly used is vocal or active opposition to fundamental, or what they call fundamental British values. And they use as examples democracy, and the rule of law, individual liberty, and uh, respect and tolerance of other faiths. Because you're not being tolerant of others and not being tolerant of what's permitted by law if you are campaigning against sex outside marriage and sex between people of the same sex. Well, the argument can be applied in that way, but what I'm asking for, uh, what all Muslims ask for, is fairness. If you're going to use that as some kind of benchmark for who an extremist is, then apply it equally to Christian person, Jewish person, a Hindu person, an atheist person who happens to hold the same view. And you'll find half of the Tory party, for example, might come under that definition of extremism also for you know voting against the same-sex uh, marriage bill. Do you then accuse the government of conflating conservative Islam with non-violent extremism? I believe so, yes. And I think this whole enterprise of non-violent extremism is something inherently problematic. But the government's view is that even non-violent extremism may lead to terrorism. It's more than a decade since ministers began tackling violent extremists with a strategy they called PREVENT. In 2011, the then Home Secretary extended PREVENT to extremists who don't support violence. PREVENT must also recognise and tackle the insidious impact of non-violent extremism, which can create an atmosphere conducive to terrorism and can popularise views which terrorists exploit. Theresa May speaking five years ago. Since then, she's refocused her strategy with the aim of improving community cohesion. There is increasing evidence that a small but significant number of people living in Britain, almost all of whom are British citizens, reject our values. We've been clear all along that the government's counter-extremism strategy must seek to defeat extremism in all its forms. Last year, Parliament made it a legal requirement for public institutions to play a part in the prevent strategy. New guidance tells universities to consider carefully whether visiting speakers are likely to express extremist views that risk drawing people into terrorism. Unless staff are convinced that the extremist views will be challenged by other speakers at the same event, they must withdraw the extremist speaker's invitation. Guidance to school teachers says they should challenge extremist ideas that can be used to legitimise terrorism. And teachers should be told where and how to refer children for further help. But Salman Butt will tell the High Court at a hearing next month that the definition of non-violent extremism in the Prevent Guidance is wider than it needs to be and is likely to interfere with his rights of free speech, freedom of assembly and freedom of religion. He says that Prevent could be counterproductive. What the government has been doing is very dangerous because a young person, a young Muslim, you know, watching the news, becoming angry at what they see, they see suffering all over the world, 
They want to know, you know, what does my religion say about this? What am I supposed to do here? What the prevent strategy has done, unfortunately, is when that child goes to his lo- or her local mosque, the imam and the people, they are scared to actually give them guidance. They're afraid that they're going to be, you know, referred to some kind of de-radicalization program or they're going to have their passport taken away or, you know, or, or any other number of measures that have been suggested against so-called extremists. Now, what does that child do now? Number one, he's going to have a, a besieged mentality now. He's going to think that we can't speak our minds. And number two, he's going to look online for something or, you know, outside of the mainstream kind of space for Muslims for answers for his or her questions. And that is when they become vulnerable to certain people harboring a genuinely malicious agenda to, to draw people down a pathway towards violence. Salman Bhatt's views were echoed two months ago by the House of Commons Home Affairs Committee. Unless concerns among the Muslim community were addressed by the government, the MPs said, prevent would continue to be viewed with suspicion by many and as toxic by others. Now, Law in Action has discovered that one of the key architects of Prevent believes that it's lost its way. He's Sir David Omond, former director of the government's eavesdropping centre GCHQ and former security and intelligence coordinator at the Cabinet Office. Sir David Omond recalled how the strategy was devised. You have to go back to September 2002. It was a year after 9-11. A lot of work had been done in that year to improve British security from terrorism. But I thought there was a need to start casting our minds forward and actually think about it strategically. And we started work on something that I called Contest, which was a name I dreamt up in the bath by picking letters from counter-terrorism strategy, trying to make a word out of it. It was a risk reduction strategy to reduce the risk from international terrorism. And how do you do that then? Well, we then operationalised it by what we called the risk equation. So the risk is a product of four things, and government can influence each one of those. One is, can you stop more people joining the terrorist movements? Can you prevent them? Secondly, can you pursue the terrorists and bring them before a court of law? Thirdly, can you actually protect the travelling public on aeroplanes, can you protect the critical infrastructure, people when they're in crowded places? And finally, can you actually prepare the system, the emergency services, so that when bad things happen, the response is swift and it's immediate and society bounces back into shape as quickly as possible? So the four Ps, as you call them, prevent, pursue, protect, prepare. Tell me about prevent in particular. Well, prevent we saw as a longer-term issue, working with local educators, social services, multi-agency. Can you spot the young people who are at risk of falling into bad company and begin to talk to them seriously about the risks they're running if they do fall into violent extremism? And did the emphasis switch towards trying to fight non-violent extremism. The PREVENT programme, as originally conceived, was about preventing violent extremism. At the same time, we were all very conscious that government should be tackling disadvantage, tackling sources of inter-community tension, 
it should be dealing with some of the worst areas of deprivation in terms of social facilities and housing. To keep it separate, that was deliberately put under the local government department. The cabinet secretary, not myself, was put in charge of pushing that forward. I think over the years that followed, there was some blurring of the lines. Both are perfectly legitimate objectives for government, but if you're pursuing counter-terrorism, then sticking to preventing violent extremism, that's a legitimate task for the police. Policing Britishness is not a legitimate task for the police. So was it a mistake then for the government to put prevent onto a statutory basis, to lay down these guidance documents relating to schools and other colleges, prisons and so on? It's much more formal and it's perhaps much more frightening, really. I think that is one of the reasons why there is pushback now from communities against the domestic prevent programme. You can see the upside of giving teachers, for example, some legal comfort that you know, they will not be uh, discriminated against if they actually rather bravely take on uh, some individuals who are behaving badly and showing all the danger signs. On the other hand, if it can be made to work voluntarily, then I think it will be better. The evidence, such as we've seen, tends to point to over-reporting. And so the legal duty has perhaps made people feel they have to protect themselves. They should actually report things that don't need reporting. It's much better if some of these things can be argued out in the classroom. After all, a sixth-form teacher should be able to have a mature discussion with students about controversial issues. Feeling that there's a legal obligation to report once a student comes out, perhaps parroting views they've heard uh, from peers outside school, that somehow that's a matter for reporting. This will chill teaching in schools. So I'm sceptical about it. It won't just chill teaching, it will discourage pupils from talking to their teachers or talking to other pupils in circumstances where teachers are aware of it, talking to their imams, talking to other colleagues, because these students, these young people, the people that this strategy is aimed at, fear that they're going to be reported to the authorities. Yes, and of course, with the right kind of guidance and the uh, right presentation, I mean, they would know that the threshold really should be a very high one. But people but, don't know that. But people don't know that, exactly. So that's why I'm, I'm very much, you know, well, let's try it for a bit longer, but let's be prepared to drop this, because in the long run, this is not the kind of measure we should be contemplating. Sir David Omond calling on the government to think again. The Home Office told us it keeps the prevent strategy under constant review, to make sure it effectively tackles the risk of radicalisation. The strategy is also being assessed as part of a wider review of the overarching contest counter-terrorism strategy to make sure it's as effective as it can be. Meanwhile, the government's latest plans to tackle extremism seem to have run into the buffers. It's nearly six months since the counter-extremism and safeguarding bill was announced in the Queen's speech. But concepts such as non-violent extremism and fundamental British values have apparently proved too difficult for officials to define. The Home Office told us that legislation to tackle extremism was being considered and the government would consult fully on any legislation before it was introduced. 
So is the law effective at nipping terrorism in the bud? How successful are our counter-terrorism laws overall? The best person to answer that question is David Anderson, QC, who steps down next February after six years as the government's independent reviewer of terrorism legislation. When he joined me in the Law in Action studio, I asked him whether our laws strike the right balance between fighting terrorism and preserving civil liberties. I think we've made some terrible mistakes in the past. If you think back to the 1970s, we had internment, and one still sees the shadow of that memory in Northern Ireland. We had the so-called five techniques used on detainees, hooding, food deprivation, sleep deprivation, and so on, uh, which were held to be inhuman and degrading treatment and may even have been torture. And I think even in the last decade, we overdid it a bit. We had the indefinite detention in Belmarsh of foreign nationals who couldn't be deported. That one was struck down by the House of Lords. We had a no-suspicion stop-and-search power under the Terrorism Act that caused a lot of resentment. My sense is that it's better now, partly because of the liberalisation that we've seen during the period of the last coalition government, and if you want a gauge of that, look at how we're doing in Strasbourg. The Human Rights Court. Yes. Um, by my count, of the last nine cases on a terrorism theme, in which the United Kingdom has been before the full court and got a reasoned judgment from the European Court of Human Rights, the UK has won eight of those nine. And that's on subjects ranging from the width of our criminal offences, detention, search procedures, safety interviews. The ninth was the Abu Qatada case, well, you could argue that even that one was a draw. He went back to Jordan in the end. The Home Secretary got her way, albeit that some hurdles had to be jumped before that could be done. And what about the definition of terrorism? That goes back to the Act of 2000. And in summary, it's violence designed to influence the government or an international organisation or to intimidate the public for the purpose of advocating a political, religious, racial or ideological cause. Do you think it is too wide? Our whole terrorism law is characterised by some very wide discretions. Now, that's good in terms of giving nimbleness and speed of action to decision makers, but it also means that these powers are open, at least theoretically, to the possibility of abuse and that people get very worried when they think those powers might apply to them. And certainly by international standards, our definition of terrorism is, I think, broader than it needs be. It catches some people who most of us would think of as, as hate criminals rather than terrorists. It also catches journalists, although the Court of Appeal in the Miranda case earlier this year has limited the scope where journalists are concerned. And looking back over your six years in office, would you say that terrorism legislation is less intrusive than it was? Do you have any examples of how terrorism law has changed over the past six years? Despite the increased threat levels, it is certainly less intrusive in 2016 than it was when I accepted the job in 2010. That's not much to do with me, nor even is it principally to do with the courts. The real reason is that the people in 2010 elected a coalition government, both parts of which were committed to a programme of cautious liberalisation. I think it helped that at the time, the popular perception, perhaps not entirely accurate, was of a reducing threat. So what we've seen over that period, 2010 to 2014, has been the abolition of no suspicion stop and search, pre-charged detention coming down from 28 days to 14 days. We've seen control orders being replaced by terrorism prevention and investigation measures, which are strictly time-limited in a way that control orders never were. And we've also seen reforms to port stops under Schedule 7 to the Terrorism Act. And the interesting thing to me is that only one of those changes, the abolition of stop and search, was made because the courts uh, required it. 
And in that case, I think there was a happy coincidence of views between the European Court of Human Rights on the one hand and Theresa May on the other when she was Home Secretary uh, and speedily agreed that this was not a power that the police really needed. And do you think this message has got through to the public or or do they still hold to the the narrative of the power-hungry security services and police insensitivity to community concerns and laws constantly being ratcheted up to new levels of oppression? Well, I think when I took on the job, not knowing much at all about this world, that might have been my rather lazy assumption. I think what showed me it was wrong was the 2012 Olympics, which was an extraordinary opportunity for any power-hungry police officer or intelligence agent to say, we really must have this additional power. Not only were no additional powers introduced in the run-up to the Olympics, none were requested. And in the months just prior to the Olympics, we saw the abolition of this no-suspicion stop-and-search power. We saw the return of a number of control order subjects to London, from which they had been relocated under the previous law. And I think for coolness under fire, actually, that was rather impressive. And uh, I don't know whether this is cause or effect, but we've got off pretty lightly, fingers crossed and touching wood, in terms of international terrorist attacks, certainly compared with a country like France. It's difficult to gloat. After all, the French had no Islamist attacks at all between 1996 and 2012. And a lot of people in this country, including Home Secretaries, were saying we need to be more like the French. But I do think we have advantages at the moment. One of them is our excellent intelligence agencies, and that goes together with the very strong powers that they have. And the second, which seems very difficult to imitate, is the good relations that we have on the whole between intelligence agencies and police. It makes us relatively good at converting intelligence into either disruptive action or evidence that can be used in court. What about the Investigatory Powers Bill currently going through Parliament? The phrase Snoopers Charter has stuck. Are you concerned about the human rights implications of this bill as it's going through Parliament? Well, that phrase was disavowed by all sensible political parties and quite right too. It's a strange area because both the privacy advocates and the intelligence agents feel on the defensive. And in both cases, it's because of changing technology. The privacy people are saying with absolute correctness that more and more we are leaving digital traces, signs for people to pick up in circumstances where they simply couldn't have picked it up before. And the intelligence world is saying with equal correctness that more and more is now encrypted. It's more and more difficult to find the content of what people are saying. And What the bill does, it doesn't create very much in the way of new powers, certainly for the intelligence agencies. You could say that's because they had a lot of powers already, albeit they weren't very clearly expressed under the old law. What it's really about is transparency, setting them out there so that people have something substantive to argue about instead of simply uh, accusing each other of deceit or lack of patriotism. And secondly, better safeguards. And central, of course, to those safeguards is bringing judges for the first time into the process of approving warrants. The bill does set out more clearly the circumstances in which the intelligence and security agencies can operate, but it still doesn't tell you a lot about what they can do. Now, you may say, well, that's inevitable and proper and right. Is it possible to make the legislation any more transparent without jeopardising the operational effectiveness of MI5 and MI6? Some have described the bill as world-leading. I'm not sure I'd go along with that altogether, but certainly 
as far as transparency is concerned, I think we do have a world-leading bill. I don't think there's anything like it in the rest of the world. Now, of course, the bill doesn't explain operationally exactly how everything is done. But if you look, for example, at the report I produced this August into the operation of the bulk powers, you'll find 60 or 70 case studies gleaned by me from the intelligence agencies and all the subject of rigorous cross-examination by not only lawyers but people with technical and with investigative skills. I don't think you'll find anywhere in the world a fuller account of how some of these bulk powers are used in practice and how useful they are. That doesn't mean, of course, they're proportionate. That's a question for Parliament to decide. But I think it's quite difficult to look at that report and not agree that these powers, whatever you might think of them, are pretty useful in attacking serious crime, paedophilia and terrorism. You mentioned that there are going to be judicial commissioners, judges or retired judges, and they're going to bring together existing commissioners who oversee various aspects of the work of the security and intelligence agencies. Is this going to work or is the job that's being given certainly to the chief commissioner such a huge job overseeing everything that you're going to have to have a full-time judge who's going to be working 24 hours a day? I would say it's a a six-day-a-week job, and I'd rather see it go to somebody who can make that sort of time commitment. They'll have technical support on a level completely unprecedented in this country. They'll have legal support as well. I think they have to work, because in a way, it's only by having a really active commission based on a culture of challenge that we're going to withstand future Snowdens. We can't rely on whistleblowers or people illegally penetrating the systems, our intelligence agencies, to keep the public up to date on what the agencies are doing. It has to be done in a more structured way, and the Investigatory Powers Commission is the way that that's going to be done. You mentioned Edward Snowden just now. Some people say that he's given the agencies a bit of a kick and that's uh, encouraged them to be as open as they now are. On the other hand, others see him as a traitor who's caused a huge amount of damage. Both are true, perhaps. I don't condone for a moment what Edward Snowden did, but one cannot deny that the increased openness that one is beginning to see all over the world has been prompted by the revelations that he made. We saw in this country lawyers picking up the material that he produced, showing it to the Investigatory Powers Tribunal, arguing that these powers weren't sufficiently set out in law and weren't sufficiently explained, and succeeding. There was a ruling just the other day to that effect in relation to two of these powers before 2015. So I think Snowden, whatever you think of him, and I don't think very much of him, uh, has undeniably helped this process, which is resulting in more transparency and ultimately better democratic control of these very significant powers. So far, I think we've been talking about the powers to fight terrorism. Let's move on to extremism and the government's prevent strategy, which is its programme to combat radicalisation in places ranging from nursery schools to prisons, um, higher education, uh, schools and so on. How successful do you think this has been over the years? Violent Islamism is a dangerous virus. And there are equally dangerous viruses coming, for example, from the extreme right wing. I think it's absolutely right that we should have some policy based on inoculating the young, intervening when it's necessary to do so. And if things really have gone wrong, attempting what is much more difficult, which is de-radicalisation. And I've no doubt that a lot of thought has gone into how we do this and that a lot of good people are delivering the programmes. But for whatever reason, uh, perceptions, particularly in Muslim communities and particularly among people who are politically aware, seem to me at least to be strongly negative. So I welcome the fact that the 
uh, prevent strategy is currently being reviewed, and I hope we're going to see some changes. You've said that prevent attracts more suspicion from Muslims than all the counter-terrorism laws put together. That's true. When I started doing the job, it was all about stop and search. Then it became all about the stops that are made at ports, and are they discriminatory and do they pick on Muslims? Uh, They are now much better controlled than they were. They're also less numerous than they were and better targeted. And nearly all the grievance that is now directed at me from Muslim communities relates to prevent. Salman Butt, a man we've spoken to who's challenging the government's uh, prevent strategy, has told us that these laws do more harm than good. They stop people talking to their imams and, and getting advice, and they fail to create the opportunity for people to talk openly about these problems and drive it all underground and onto extreme websites. Well, you hear that a lot, and you have to wonder why it is that you hear it. There are certainly people who seek to use Prevent to ferment grievance and discord, just as in the past they've tried to use other counter-terrorism powers for that purpose. But I'm also prepared to believe that there are instances of Prevent duties being applied in an insensitive and over-the-top manner. I think what government needs to do is to give communities more of a stake in the Prevent strategy. Uh, They need more transparency, explaining what they're doing. They need to engage, in particular, a wider range of Muslims. And I think some independent review, which I think has worked over the years quite effectively when you're looking at the harder end of counter-terrorism law, would be useful also as a discipline to apply to prevent. Because your responsibility doesn't cover counter-extremism and prevent. No, that's right. And of course, independent review isn't a panacea. But it seems to me it's worth having when a policy impinges strongly on people's rights, but when not everything about it can be debated in public. And that's just as true of prevent as it is of the counter-terrorism law. And of course, prevent is designed to help the Muslim community as well as monitor it, because Muslims are the victims of terrorism, just as many terrorists happen to be Muslims themselves. And we've seen sectarian attacks uh, here in the UK, Muslims being murdered by other Muslims in the past year. And so you would think that the Muslim community, and I realise it's a series of communities, would welcome attempts to protect them and keep an eye on the bad guys. Well, that's certainly right, and some of them do. But the unpalatable fact is that the public discourse on the subject to prevent among Muslim communities is, I would say, currently dominated uh, by people who oppose the strategy. For one reason or another, the government is not winning this debate. It's not getting its message across. I think when that's the case, it's no good blaming the audience. You have to think again about how you're formulating your message. And and let's take some examples given by people within the Muslim community. The case of the schoolboy who was allegedly reported to the authorities by his school because he wrote that he lived in a terrorist house. And what he meant to say was a terrorist house, a house that was joined on to its neighbours. Is that a story that rings true or, or was there perhaps rather more to it than was reported? I think that story rather demonstrates that uh, credulous media does not assist. That particular story was run without mentioning the fact that as well as indeed saying in his homework that he lived in a terrorist house, which was an obvious spelling error, the boy had also said that his uncle beat him. And when the police went round to the house to see what was going on, it was really a straightforward safeguarding intervention. Unfortunately, by that time, the story had gone round the world. It had been retweeted hundreds of thousands of times, and the myth remains well ingrained in Muslim communities that I go to visit.
So a lot of this involves public relations, doesn't it? Well, I don't know about public relations, but they certainly need to explain what they're doing, what the evidential basis is for the strategies that they adopt, what the statistics are. I mean, one knows, for example, that the... Um, a significant proportion of prevent interventions now relate to the extreme right wing. And I believe that that proportion is growing very strongly. Well, why not publish the figures on that? Why not publish training materials? Um, Why not do more to engage different types of Muslims and try to reassure them and involve them in what's being delivered? Still talking about prevent, the Muslim Council of Britain announced a couple of weeks ago it wanted to set up its own version of this strategy, but I think it may have had second thoughts about that. Would it be helpful if the Muslims themselves um, set out something along these lines? I think it's good that the Muslim Council of Britain has started to see a role for itself in combating radicalisation. Uh, coincides with a younger generation of leadership drawn from both genders and a number of different schools of Islam. And I hope it will be part of a change from a grievance-focused to a solution-focused approach. But I'm not sure that a solo effort is going to be very effective. I would rather see them engaged with by the government and cooperating in a sensible national approach that does a better job than anything we've seen until now in bringing all of us together against the people of violence on the extremes. How easy is it to define something like non-violent extremism? Is is that something which uh, can be put into the words of a statute? Well, in some respects, the law already touches non-violent extremism. We have laws against abuse, insult, inciting racial or religious hatred, encouraging support for terrorist organisations, disseminating terrorist material and so on, and none of those activities are necessarily violent in themselves. But taking it further and applying it to ideas that are, for example, un-British or opposed to democracy seems to me very dangerous and quite wrong. We got through the Cold War, after all, without making it illegal to be a communist or to express communist opinions. I'm very much with uh, Justice Brandes. The power of reason as applied through public discussion was preferable to silence coerced by law. I suppose the thinking behind this is you start with a lack of tolerance, a lack of respect for the the rights of others, a a lack of respect for um, broader areas of sexuality, for example, a lack of respect for what are seen as British values, certainly a lack of respect for uh, practices that are permitted within law. Uh, And and then people become radicalised and then, although it doesn't inevitably lead to terrorism, there is something of a conveyor belt process. Do you think that's a a realistic approach that ministers take or do you think that they've simply got it wrong in trying to link lack of tolerance for others with actually going out and killing people? It is certainly right that some people have graduated to terrorism from membership of groups such as uh, al-Mahad Jaroun, whose leader, incidentally, is now finally um, serving a, a prison sentence. But I think when we see a problem, it's always a mistake to assume that a coercive law is the solution. We can all think of highly unpleasant preachers of hate who it would be very nice to see silenced. Uh, The difficulty is in finding a way of doing that that doesn't at the same time place a lot of innocent people under suspicion, either as uh, possible extremists or indeed as people who are possibly vulnerable to extremism. And I think history shows us that uh, if you try to introduce coercive laws into this area, which is really at the core of people's expressive and uh, associative freedoms, there is a very strong risk uh, that you're going to start coming up with results that are simply counterproductive, that simply help the terrorist and the extremist recruit to their cause, 
by spreading the story that the state is, is against them and everything they stand for. For a long time now, we've been promised a counter-extremism bill to provide a number of coercive measures whereby extremist activity would be curtailed, banning orders for extremist organisations, extremist disruption orders to stop the harmful activities of individuals, closure orders to close down premises. We haven't heard very much about that recently. Any idea what's going on? Over the last six years, I've seen an awful lot of secret material, everything to do with the operation of the laws against terrorism, everything to do with surveillance. I think the single document that has alarmed me most was the early draft, I emphasise, of the counter-extremism bill that I saw in the summer of 2015. Since then, we've seen nothing definite. We've had a commitment, which I welcome very strongly, of consultation on every aspect of this proposal. I hope that the consultation extends not only to the details of whatever might be proposed, but also to the question of whether it is necessary to have a law in this space at all. Because you think it would be counterproductive? I think there's a very strong risk it would be counterproductive. I think particularly when you bypass the protections of the criminal law, which seems to be the intention in what's been said publicly about this bill, and particularly when the whole bill is based on this concept of extremism, which seems to be one that uh, everybody has great difficulty in defining. But whatever the bill says, you could say that no prosecution should be brought without the consent of the Attorney-General, and there would be restrictions and safeguards. Surely it's necessary to give these broad powers to make sure you catch the bad guys, even though, in theory, it could make life difficult for people acting perfectly lawfully. Well, trouble with broad powers is they're not just exercised by ministers or or by prosecutors. And indeed, this bill wasn't a a prosecution model. It was based on civil orders that would be sought by ministers and which could then, uh, breach of which could then be punished in the criminal courts. Do you think the government should simply abandon the counter-extremism bill and say it's too difficult, we've thought again? Or do you think that they should try to modify it and that it's possible that something could be salvaged from this concept? I think that's probably getting a little too close to politics, which is uh, an area I'm always very careful to uh, avoid. But what I have set out in my report is 15 questions that I think Parliament needs to ask itself if a bill along these lines is produced. And one of those questions relates to the police and what it's going to do to perceptions of them. It's one thing policing a criminal law that people by and large accept is necessary. But if you're going to start looking out for extremist activity ill-defined, and you're going to be responding to people who say they think they've seen a picture of Hitler through their neighbour's net curtain, then you're really looking at policing in quite a different way. And I think it's not surprising that some very experienced police officers have expressed their own reservations about this proposal. But we should be doing something, shouldn't we, about non-violent extremism. It can sow the seeds of division, it can encourage segregation, it can undermine women's rights, minorities' rights, and create a mindset which is potentially open to exploitation by people geared to violence. Surely this is something that the law should be trying to tackle. Yes, we are in a battle for hearts and minds, there's no question about that. There is a public debate going on, which is absolutely as it should be, Uh, That argument has to be won by the forces of diversity, tolerance, open-mindedness. The government can participate in that debate. It may also facilitate other people who want to participate in that debate. What it shouldn't do, in my opinion, is to try to close that debate down. Before you 
moved into this area, you were a specialist on European Union law. I don't know whether that's a stock to uh, buy into at the moment or a stock to sell. But what do you think the effect of Brexit, assuming it goes through, is going to have on these areas? Is it going to make it more difficult for us to tackle terrorism because we will lose access to EU-wide institutions? Or is it going to make it easier because we will have more control over our own policing and intelligence? Progress in Europe has been fitful. It tends to have been most marked, I'm afraid, after some great atrocities, such as 9-11 when we got the European arrest warrant, the Madrid and London attacks of 2004-2005 when we got universal data retention, and indeed Paris since when we've had the exchange of passenger name records on intra-EU flights, which is an extremely useful uh, power. We in the UK have been leaders in promoting useful legislation in Europe that makes the whole continent safer and therefore makes us safer as well. Now, it may be possible after we've left to negotiate observer or consultative status on some of these policies and some of these shared databases. But what saddens me is that we will lose that leadership and that what there is left for us to adopt will, I think, be less effective than it would have been if we'd stayed involved in a leading role. Looking back over your six years as independent reviewer of terrorism legislation, you've had an extraordinary privilege. You have had access to secrets that I and everybody else in the country will never have access to. You have a broad view of a huge range of information, which even people in the individual security and intelligence services may not have. Has this affected your view of the way in which the people whose job it is to look after us do their job Are you uh, impressed with them? Are you disappointed with them? Could you have had any idea that they behave in the way that they do? I've met a lot of intelligence officials. I've met a lot of politicians. I've met a lot of terrorists and suspected terrorists. What I would say is that none of them conforms to a stereotype. I've met intelligence officials extremely keen on acting under proper human rights protections. I've met many politicians who know their communities are very keen to get it right in an unpolitical sort of way. And I've met terrorists who are highly educated and the sort of people where you to meet them at a bus stop, uh, you talk to them in a completely unremarkable way uh, and, and then go on your way. But I have gained admiration for a lot of people over the last six years. Uh, the police officers on armed patrol in Derry, knowing that the next attack may be personally targeted on them. Prison officers in Belmarsh or Magabry. People, ordinary people, who seek justice when the system is against them. My admiration for all those people is huge. You've acted as something of a catalyst. You've persuaded the security and intelligence agencies that they can tell us quite a lot about the sort of things they do without jeopardising their operational effectiveness. How have you achieved that? And do you think that's something that can be extended to deal with extremism rather than terrorism, The more that becomes transparent, the more effective uh, the government's policies may be. You use the word transparent, and to me that just used to be a, a word on the page of a law report. I now, I think, appreciate rather better its extraordinary power. Two years ago, you had privacy advocates, intelligence professionals, simply not speaking the same language, angry with each other, feeling deceived by each other, not even talking to each other. And the reason the surveillance debate in this country is now in a completely different place is because the intelligence agencies were persuaded, whether by the courts, 
perhaps to some small extent by, by my report and others, but they were persuaded to put everything out there in the public domain. Overnight, the nature of the debate changed. Instead of being, you deceived us, it became, where's the operational case for this power? Or shouldn't there be an extra safeguard on that one? Now, I'd like to think, you ask about extremism, um, that a similar remedy might do the trick. You have two camps when it comes to prevent. They talk to themselves, they don't talk to each other. There are two completely different perceptions of what this policy is about and whether it's wise to pursue it and in what way it ought to be pursued. It seems to me that if much more information was published about what the government was trying to do, what its basis is for doing it, what the metrics are for measuring success, what the data tells us about how it's being used, we might be in a place where we could start a properly inclusive dialogue uh, in which everybody was involved. There's also been a change in the special court, the tribunal that deals with intelligence and security measures. That's much more open, I think, than it was a few years ago. It's much more willing to find against the authorities and tell us a little bit about what they're up to, again, within the bounds of national security. I think the initial credit belongs to Lord Justice Mummery, who a long time ago now had a first public hearing in the case of Kennedy, despite the fact that the rules rather looked as though they did not permit a public hearing. Uh, on the basis of that, the European Court in Strasbourg upheld the operation of the tribunal, and we've seen uh, ingenious lawyers using the Snowden revelations in order to bring a whole series of cases, which, again, the tribunal has dealt with as openly as it can. So that, again, is an advance, and, and again, I don't think that's damaged national security. No, um, there's a statutory duty not to damage national security. I respect and understand people within the intelligence agencies who are brought up in the tradition of Bletchley Park uh, to believe that you simply don't talk about anything you do. But the days when it was enough just to send in some grey-haired chap to uh, have a look at what they're doing and reassure the public that it's all fine are really past. People now expect verification. They expect uh, accessibility. They expect some ability to evaluate for themselves whether these powers are a good idea or not. I think what we've seen over the last couple of years is that it is possible to achieve that without jeopardising national security. And it's possible to row back on certain powers that aren't needed to not uh, react to any particular incident or any potential incident by bringing in more and more powers. Uh, and and uh, you'd think ministers would claim the credit for respecting people's rights and for respecting privacy and not seeking any greater powers uh, than an independent reviewer such as you thinks are necessary. Ministers, understandably enough, are enthralled to the media. And although, of course, I don't accuse journalists of being terrorist sympathisers, they do have very similar interests in some respects to the terrorists. Both groups want the word terror in very large letters on the front page. They want people to be afraid. They want people to buy the newspapers. So it's very difficult for ministers to stand up and say, we are uh, reducing the ferocity of some of these laws because people are going to turn around and accuse them of endangering the life of the public. But I do think there is a good story to tell about the last six years. And I would accept that in 2014, to some extent, the tide changed. And we've seen some laws being toughened up, perhaps some regrets about respects in which they had been liberalised, but so far only at the margins. Uh, the law at the moment, uh, I would suggest, is in a reasonably good place. But that may simply demonstrate to you that I've been doing this job for long enough and it's time to let somebody else have a go. David Anderson, QC, the Independent Reviewer of Terrorism Legislation. That's all we have time for on this week's programme. Wherever or however you listen to Law in Action, do join me again next week.